Coming to you from the brand new Los Angeles Review of Books headquarters, the barely finished, barely furnished, and certainly not finished uh, Los Angeles Review of Books headquarters. I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today, a very special guest. I'm sitting down with A. Scott Berg, a Pulitzer Prize winning biographer of American figures from 20th century America, Max Perkins, Samuel Goldwyn, Catherine Hepburn, Charles Lindbergh. Now a new biography on Woodrow Wilson, the 28th president of the United States. I, for this question, will forget what I've learned from your book and think back to only the image I get from high school history of Woodrow Wilson, or the, the image the average American, I think, carries with them about of Wilson. They think of a, a fellow who kind of stern-looking, who was perhaps... They remember he was quite religious. They remember he had certain ideas, the League of Nations and the war to end all wars, as he considered the First World War. Uh, maybe a stern idealist. What, what do you first want to add to, to enrich or correct uh, that, that image that people seem to, it's all they have about Wilson sometimes? Well, I would certainly say he was all of those things. Mm. Uh, what has been left out of the portrait is the third dimension, mm. which was that I think Woodrow Wilson, and I'm not forgetting Lincoln here, was probably the most passionate man who ever inhabited the White House. Mm. Um, I believe that this was the most influential figure of the 20th century, mm. and I believe Woodrow Wilson's personal story is the most dramatic story that has ever unfolded in the White House. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to add, the value I wanted to bring to this biography of Wilson after 13 years of research, was to show the extreme passion that really was the foundation of everything he thought and did. Now, your interest in Wilson goes back to your teenage years. Did you know of, of this passion even then? In, in Wilson's life? I, I had a sense of Wilson's passion. It was something I think I at least wanted to believe. It was something I picked up from the very first book on him that I had read. And I thought, God, I wish this could be developed more. And then in every book I read about him, most of which were fairly academic. And I think part of the problem Wilson has had is because he was an academician, most of his biographers are academicians, mm -hmm. and most of them are written from the neck up. <laughs> so you get very little of his heart or his gut. Mm. And he he had both. He was an extremely visceral and emotional man. Mm. And what I really set out to do in this book was not only to write the most emotional, the most personal biography of Wilson, but really of any president. It's very hard to come by a presidential biographer, a biography mm. that puts you in in the subject's shoes and really lets you walk into the White House as the subject did. This is something I wanted to capture in my life of Wilson. Now, why is it so hard to find that in a presidential biography? You would think the main thing a reader would want almost is the experience of what's it, what's it like to be the president in this era, you know, to get that image of, as you say, to get the feeling of walking into the White House as this man would have. Why was that, why would that be rare? Well, I think it's rare because presidents deal with matters of such great moment mm. that the biographers immediately get onto those things as they should, and they should parse all those elements of a president's life. But I think equally important, and especially in the case of Wilson, who was, as I said, so emotional and passionate, I thought it was important to show how his personal story, how all those personal emotions really informed and affected 
every major presidential decision he made. So I wanted to show not just the decision, but what was behind the decision, what went into the decision. And in some cases, it goes back to his childhood. In some cases, it goes back to his early ancestry. It was no coincidence, and you, you pointed out that he was so religious. I believe he was the most religious president we ever had. It's no surprise to me that when Woodrow Wilson delivers the most important speech of his life, uh, which I think is one of the two or three most important speeches delivered in American history, when he asked the Senate to have, or the entire Congress to have a declaration of war against Germany leading us into World War I, that the very last sentence of that speech echoes Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. Um, this is pretty important for a man, Woodrow Wilson, who was the son of a Presbyterian minister, the grandson of a Presbyterian minister, and had generations of Presbyterian ministers mm-hmm. before that. So it's all connected, and I wanted the reader to see how connected it was. Mm-hmm. Now, you've referred to Wilson as the scholar-president. Tell me what that title you grant him means in the context of 20th century American presidents. What, what does that make him? Well, it means in terms of any century, Woodrow Wilson is the most educated president we ever had. The most educated president, period, Ph.D. holder. He's he's our only president with a Ph.D. on top of his legal studies. Uh, Many of our um, presidents uh, studied law. But Wilson did a Ph.D. on top of that, in addition to having very good undergraduate education. Uh, this is somebody who is interested in politics and political theory, uh, even as a college student, and in fact was published, had his first major piece on, po- on politics, published within weeks of his graduation from Princeton back in 1879. So this is a genuine scholar at work. This is a president who also wrote a dozen books. He wrote a five-volume history of the United States, a biography of George Washington, several books on political theory, essays on literature and politics. This was a heavy thinker, um, and it's rare that we have had such a thinker in the White House. I did not say he's the most intellectual. I mean, I don't want all the Jeffersonians out there suddenly (laughs) sending in letters, uh, because I'm fully aware of that. And and I think even Wilson would grant he was not the most intellectual. Mm -hmm. But in terms of formal education, he did have more than anyone else, and he really applied it as president. Mm. And this distinction between education and, shall we say, intellectualism, I think is important, because it's something I wanted to ask you coming in, because this is a figure you've mentioned elsewhere, Adlai Stevenson. We think of him as someone, defe- a potential president defeated by, maybe doomed by his intellectualism. Uh, this was, this was certainly not the case. Wilson, Wilson's education was, was to his advantage. There, there's a distinction there. I mean, is there a way in which Stevenson's education was to his disadvantage? Well, I think there was. I, although I, actually I should say, I don't think it was his education that was to a disadvantage. Except I think it was the perception of his education. And in the mid-century, in the 1950s, when Adlai Stevenson ran for president in 1952 and 1956, he was accused of being, quote, an egghead. And so he got branded, you see, in a kind of know-nothing period in American history. Did they have the term egghead in the 20s and the, in the teens? Um, the, the, the word existed, mm. yeah. But it, it was really rebranded for Adlai Stevenson, and in part 
it was because he was also bald and he literally had an egg egg head, you see. So that didn't help him. But it was at a time where we were coming back from World War II. We were getting into an age of conformity, an age of, I was going to say non-intellectualism, maybe it was anti-intellectualism. So in another time, you see, Adlai Stevenson might have succeeded as Woodrow Wilson did. In fact, Adlai Stevenson also went to Princeton, was a great admirer of Woodrow Wilson, uh, had been a student at Princeton just a few years after Woodrow Wilson had left that college. Mm. So Wilson was very much in, in his thoughts, on his mind. The thing about Wilson, you see, was he made intellectualism, he made eggheadism attractive in his day. Mm. And in some ways, Woodrow Wilson was the anti-Teddy Roosevelt. Mm. who was rough and ready and all about ac action and a rough writer and, you know, mm. sort of leap before you think. Um, and, and Wilson was the antithesis of that. Wilson was extremely thoughtful and, and was not showy. Mm. So he made in that moment when he first ran in 1912 and then again in 1916, uh, being educated, he made that a good thing. Mm. It was a time, it was actually one of the things that led to Wilson's meteoric rise in American history. And I think he had the most meteoric rise in American history. 1910, president of Princeton, 1912, the president of the United States. I mean, it's just, it's miraculous. It's just, it's just hard to imagine. But part of the way it happened was he used his college experience, especially as president of Princeton, in which he was trying to level the social playing field. He believed higher education was the great catapult in American lives, that no matter how poor you were, no matter from what class you were from in this classless country, higher education, hard work, um, meritocracy, you see, could get you ahead, could let you rise several rungs on the ladder. And Wilson, when he was first running for office, even before that, was able to turn his campus, Princeton, into a kind of metaphor for the American meritocracy. And as a result of that, you see, people looked at Wilson and they liked the way he spoke. They liked what his thoughts were. They felt a little better about themselves because they understood this egghead of 1912. And he could frame himself as... The, uh, the product, I became this through the American meritocracy. That's, that's how it seemed to people? Absolutely. And Wilson, you see, was strangely egalitarian. <laughs> and even though he went to this, this very exclusive college, he was excluded from much of it because he was basically a poor Presbyterian minister's son when he was um, an undergraduate there. Um, as a college professor, he made a few thousand dollars a year. He had to supplement his income by writing books, uh, which he did. And it really wasn't until he became president of Princeton that he began to earn some real money, I mean, enough to build a, a really nice house with nice furniture in it. So yes, he did become the poster child for the values of higher education. Mm -hmm. And he really tried to spread that gospel to everybody in the United States. And he began his time as the president of Princeton as something of a reformer. He thought Princeton was not doing all it could as, as an engine of the meritocracy, did he not? Uh, that's correct. And, and he was right. Princeton was not doing all it could. It was, as Wilson's predecessor as 
president of Princeton boasted, um, Princeton had become the finest country club in America. <laughs> and that's the, his predecessor liked that about it. It was, he, it was good. He loved it. This was a, a glorious thing. It was a beautiful place to wake up every day. It, to this day, remains, I think, the most beautiful campus in this country. And it was basically this this little enclave for the sons of the very rich in the United States. Well, that was fine to a point. Uh, but it had become a slave to a, a club system on the campus, sort of like fraternities, uh, eating clubs. And if you had, you know, if you didn't have enough money, if you didn't have enough family background, you were not invited to join those clubs, as Woodrow Wilson was not. And this was a kind of resentment he carried with him for the rest of his life. But he wanted to do something about it. He didn't just curse the darkness. Uh, he really wanted to change the system. And as president of Princeton, he immediately changed pedagogy. He immediately changed the way college classes are taught in this country. Uh, and that system, that model he put together is with us today. If you went to a college in which you majored in something, in which there was a sequence of courses to your major, in which you took some courses outside of it, and you took electives to complement your major, in which you had two lectures a week and maybe a small class, possibly with a graduate student, that is the Wilsonian model. Mm. He put all those elements together at Princeton, and over the last century, virtually every college in this country has copied that system. Mm. Having put all that in place, Wilson then decided to go after the social structure of, of Princeton, and it was there he met opposition from the trustees, uh, many of whom were from that group that had been excluding the likes of him back when he was an undergraduate. You describe... Pre-Wilson Princeton, the, the, the clubbishness that had set in, the, the ways that it wasn't functioning as maybe it ostensibly should have been. These are the same fears people have about American politics even today, that it's becoming a, a meaningless club in some sense, right? Well, I think that's true. And frankly, that's one of the reasons Wilson didn't go into politics right off the bat, even though he had this intense interest, even though even in college he had proved himself to be a superior orator, and even though he had a lot to say, he felt uh, when he got out of college and for the next 10 years when he was really wandering around trying to trying to find how he could enter politics, he just began to see uh, that you really did need money or family name, rather the same things that had excluded him from the Princeton clubs. And when he realized he was not going to get a toehold even in the political system, uh, when he realized he was in love with a woman he had met in Georgia and wanted to marry her and have a family, that's when he decided he better get a career. And that was in academia. And that's why this man spent the next 30 years of his life only dreaming of politics and having not a shot at getting into it. Hmm. What's so interesting? Why is this... Were Wilson's wives more interesting than the other wives of other presidents? Let's put it that way. Well, I think they were. Wilson had two extremely interesting wives, um, and I should hasten to add, not at the same time. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, his first wife was this beloved woman, Ellen Axon, uh, from Rome, Georgia, whom he met while he was trying to have a law career down in Georgia. 
And he fell instantly in love, this Presbyterian minister's son, having met this Presbyterian minister's daughter. And that was really what, what forced him to get a career in, in academia. She was a really, uh, not only a beautiful woman, but she was extremely artistic, uh, could have had a career as an artist. Uh, she, she was a very good painter. Um, and she studied uh, with some very important painters, won prizes for her artwork, uh, all of which she gave up when she became a uh, wife and mother, or most of which she gave up. Uh, she was also a very good reader. She was Wilson's best editor. He ran every article, every book, every speech uh, by her before he put them out in public. So she was an extremely dynamic character. When they finally got to the White House, she became actually the first activist first lady we ever had. Uh, we tend to think of Eleanor Roosevelt as the first first lady to go out there and fight for causes. In fact, it was Ellen Axon Wilson who did that um, back in 1912, 13, 14, uh, where she began to agitate uh, basically for the improvement of the slums in Washington, which was basically a black ghetto. And she literally got congressmen to walk a few blocks from the Capitol to see the kind of squalor that American citizens were living in. And then, rather suddenly, she was on her deathbed. Uh, she had Bright's disease, a kidney ailment, and on her deathbed, I mean, moments before she died, she got the news that a slum clearance bill that she had been after had just passed. She also contributed one other thing, and that is she was a superb amateur gardener. And when she moved into the White House, she saw a plot of land, and she thought she, thought she ought to plant roses there. Uh, so to this day, the White House rose garden goes back to Ellen Wilson. Now, the interesting thing... The President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, this great passionate romantic, upon the death of Ellen Wilson, the President was bereft. He could barely get out of bed. He loved this woman so deeply. Being as religious as he was, he didn't contemplate suicide, but he did say that he wished somebody would just shoot him, which is pretty extreme. Mm. He talked of resigning from office. And then, um, maybe fate, he would say providence, um, through Providence, he met and fell in love with, instantly, a rather attractive young widow living in Washington. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the next year, he courted her rather privately, had small dinners in the White House, always chaperoned. Uh, but in the course of the next year, he wrote her hundreds of passionate love letters, and I'm talking about Woodrow Wilson here, writing passionate <laughs> love letters. This is not in alignment at all with the, that high school image I gave. You know, this, this is what you want to include in this book most. I mean, in, I mean, some of these love letters, and, and to his first wife as well when he was courting her, I mean, they just get sickening after a while. I mean, yes. It's just hard to believe, and it's especially hard to believe it's Woodrow Wilson doing all this. But after a year of this courtship, uh, Woodrow Wilson was able to convince this young widow, Edith Bowling Galt, to marry him, and marry him she did. And they became really the most inseparable first couple in American history. And I'm not forgetting uh, the Reagans here, who, right. who were very inseparable. There's so many, there's, there's, when, when you talk in, in the book, there's many instances of that where 
Wilson and his presidency, that was, that was the occasion for the first example of something, the only example of something. I mean, you always have to clarify, you know, there's, there's, people have made more of later examples of, as you say, cl- uh, closeness between uh, the president and the first lady, or other examples of intellectuals running for office. But it seems like with this book, a lot of what you have to do is say, well, Actually, Wilson was the first. Actually, Wilson was the only one of these. You know, it's, it's why, why, why don't we know these things? Um, I, I think in large measure uh, because he hasn't had good biographies written about him. I just don't think people have paid attention to a lot of this. And I think a lot of it also is cyclical in that here we are now exactly a 100 years after Wilson's inauguration. And I think we are seeing a great parallel between our times today and the times then. So it takes periodically uh, those opportunities when history and the present really match up. Mm. And I think we are in one of those periods now in many ways. Do you see 100-year cycles regardless of when you're looking at, when is the beginning point, when is point A, when is point B? Do you see history in 100-year cycles? Well, to some extent I do. I mean, as somebody who writes histories in a way, sure I do, uh, because it makes for nice packaging. Um, but I'm not a slave to that in any way. There are times, however, when, when these parallels just become inevitable and just, you just can't look away. I mean, they're just too obvious. And that's certainly the case here with Wilson. Uh, but you are right. He is responsible for so many firsts. Um, and I think that's just because he was one of the most innovative presidents we've ever had. I think it's why until, really until the last few decades, Wilson was always in the top four or five presidents of all those presidential polls of the, mm-hmm. of the greats. Uh, Wilson was always at the very top there along with, with Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned the parallels, Wilson's time to the present. And Wilson to Obama, even I'll make it more direct. You you had a, an article in the New York Times a few months ago about about what Obama could learn from Wilson, and I do I do think of this issue of intellectual presidents, ed- educated presidents, and I recall a lot of discussions when Obama first came in. Oh, finally, a president who's written books, who's educated, who's not afraid to seem intellectual or educated. What what are important similarities or or differences between how Obama has been seen as intellectual? And how Wilson was seen as intellectual or educated. I mean, these these are terms I don't want to mix and I don't want to mix them up. Uh, what is the difference between those the the the, the edu- educationally, intellectually, in the way that we see these men? Well, I think the biggest perceived similarity is their aloofness, mm. uh, a kind of detachment that they had, especially from the political process itself. The reality, and this is the greatest difference, is that Wilson was not detached. Wilson was not afraid to roll up his sleeves. Uh, he had sharp political elbows, and strangely, he loved to scrap. Yeah, he could play the game. He could play the game. He loved to get in there. And it's it's quite ironic because he had less practical experience than than Barack Obama. I mean, this is somebody who had one political office in his life before the presidency, and that is the governorship of New Jersey, which he held for about 18 months. That was it. I mean, he had only run for one office in his life before he ran for president of the United States, which he then won. So it's it's ironic, interesting, and really compelling 
that Woodrow Wilson proved to be as politically astute as he was. Uh, and in so doing, he introduced a number of his firsts. Uh, this was the first president since John Adams in 1800 to actually go to the Capitol to conduct business. We make a big deal today of the president giving the State of the Union address, showing up, we're all one big happy American family uh, for a few hours. No president had done that since Adams. Uh, Wilson brought back that idea of the president delivering the speech himself. Wilson wanted to do that, first of all, because he was a superb orator. But second of all, he wanted to humanize the presidency. He wanted the Congress to see there was a person there in the White House. The chief executive was a man with ideas who had to put them across. Wilson also became the president who called more joint sessions of Congress than any other president in history. This was, again, another way for Wilson to want to come down to the Congress and conduct business. And he did it in a place that I referred to in my op-ed in the New York Times. There is a little room in the Congress that is virtually unused. Wilson was the first president ever to use it for its designated purpose. And there's been almost nobody who's used it since. Just it's empty these days? I wondered about that. It's locked up. <laughs> you have to first si find the sergeant of arms who oh, will find sure. the man who has the key to open the room. Right. And the room is called the president's room. You'd think that wouldn't be locked. You'd think it would see some use. So it gets ceremonial use because it is, it is possibly the most beautiful little room in the Capitol. Beautiful Italianate tile and it's just kind of exquisite. Very high ceiling, but a small room. So whenever there's like a big ceremonial signing of something, a president will show up, uh, usually on the last day of a congressional session when there are a lot of bills that have to be assigned, the president will show up and, and, and do his photo ops. Wilson showed up four or five times a week in this room. He conducted business there. He would grab senators as they walked off the floor. He'd sit them down. He'd give them a little hi history lesson. You know, he was a college professor. That's right. what he, he remained a teacher in some way, in some sense. Always. Mm -hmm. He was enlightening. Mm -hmm. That's what Wilson did. And so this was another way in which he humanized the presidency. Mm -hmm. uh, he believed in, in great transparency in office. Mm -hmm. This was the first president to call press conferences. I mean, Wilson had 60 press conferences in his first year as president. Well, this is now an institution, but Wilson started it. And he had a sense of showmanship. Part of it was about getting some attention for his program. So Wilson, when he signed bills, became the first president to use more than one pen, for example. You know, he'd sign his first name with one pen and then and his last name with a... Well, that's become a, just a ritual now, but this was a ceremony that Wilson knew would pay dividends. How did he, how did he know, not just that, how did he know that would pay dividends, but how did he, how did he know the things that would work that he did would work. And do you know what I mean? That's, I could have phrased that question better, but he seemed to, he seemed to know things that previous presidents didn't. Maybe it was because of his edu education. Uh, but certainly he seemed to have known things presidents since don't. You know, what, what is the source of some of the wisdom Wilson somehow preternaturally accrued before, before coming into office? Well, I, I mean, I, how do you define an instinct? 
Yeah, I think he was politically instinctive. That being said, it's part of the reason why I try to give you his ancestry and and his backstory. Uh, and you know, this growing up as a minister's son, for example, he listened to sermons all the time. Uh, so he developed that rhythm in his speech patterns. He learned how to convince. He he got that, I think, in large measure from his father and his father's you know, ancestors before him. Uh, so that was certainly a factor. I think a lot of it goes back to the Scottish Presbyterian tradition as well, in which, in which education and politics were part of religion. They were all combined. Uh, and I think as a result of that, Wilson had great integrity. And I, I mean that in every sense of the word. Um, there was nothing split or detached about him. Uh, he was of a single mind. Uh, he had very little ambivalence about things. He always had an open mind and would listen to all sides. But when he decided, that was it. Uh, he came to clear decisions that he could live with. Difficult though some of them were. Well, we might talk about his morality. Uh, or his, his moral sense. I mean, it's, it's one of those things I never know how to think about. I never know whether I want there, I want morality to be a bigger component of the political conversation or a smaller one. You know, he, he had a, his relationship to morality was not just, not just religious in nature. I mean, morality was huge for him no matter what sphere of life he was in, right? That's correct. It, it, it was very deep with Woodrow Wilson. It was, it was his innermost fiber, in fact. And Wilson's personal morality influenced everything he ever said, thought, or did. And in essence, especially as Wilson became president, especially as he advanced the most progressive domestic agenda the country had seen, especially as he began to develop a foreign policy that we live with to this day, it all goes back to Woodrow Wilson's own personal morality. And in some ways, he was a scold. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this was somebody who was very, very strict. Mm, he yes. really was. And at the end of the day, he really imposed his personal strictness, his personal beliefs, not just on the country, but on the world, and not just in the 20th century, but now well into the 21st century. There is some sense, like the roses planted at the at the White House by his wife. We're living with many, we're living with the legacy of Wilson in many, many ways, perhaps more so than, more so than most other presidents, more so than any other president. How, how, what's, what's a non-hyperbolic way to put that? Well, uh, I like hyperbole. Uh, <laughs> it sells. <laughs> well, um, I think, uh, this is why I say I think he is certainly the most influential man of the 20th century. I mean, I think one cannot deny the influence of Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln. Uh, we certainly live with a lot of their thoughts and, um, and beliefs. Uh, but in terms of modernizing the presidency, uh, in terms of how a president interacts with Congress, uh, in terms of advancing progressive legislation, uh, I don't think Franklin Roosevelt, Lyndon Johnson, John F. Kennedy, uh, up to Barack Obama, I don't think they've done anything that doesn't hinge directly upon Woodrow Wilson's new freedom between 1913 and 1921. We, we talk about how he shaped American politics. What does Wilson reflect about 
American culture of that time of his of his era was is there is there some is he a shaper of the culture or does he himself reflect what what America was at that time as well? I think he's definitely a shaper. I mean, he, in fact, he himself periodically called himself a radical, uh, and and he said, "I mean that in the most literal sense." The, the you root, couldn't say that today. No, and the root of the word is root. And yeah. he said, "I want to get to the root of problems, and mm-hmm. sometimes that means simply uprooting things. Mm-hmm. That means taking a country that he felt was rather corrupt." That was in the hands of a half dozen uh, multi-millionaires, the J.P. Morgans and the Carnegies and the Fricks, uh, who had a monopoly not just on their individual industries, but really on the entire nation. Um, and these are the things he wanted to break up. And so he immediately, once he got into office, uh, got rid of the high tariffs that every American had to pay. He he imposed a modern income tax, which was graduated, such that richer people paid a higher percentage than lower people did. Call it a redistribution of wealth, if you will. A lot of people called it socialism even then. Wilson didn't care. He thought it was the fair thing to do. This is why Wilson imposed, created the Federal Reserve System, which has been basically the foundation of the American economy for the last hundred years. Again, he did this to, to level the playing field for all Americans, taking some of the power away from those six industrialist bankers mm. uh, who, who were more powerful than the country itself. Mm. Wilson remembered, you know, he became president in 1913. In 1907, there had been a panic in this country, and J.P. Morgan almost by himself bailed out the United States of America. Well, this was fine on one hand, but Wilson found this terrifying, that one man basically held the purse strings of an entire country. So that's where the Federal Reserve came from. And so along come the rest of the progressive things, you know, workman's compensation, the eight-hour workday, uh, breaking the gra- glass ceiling of putting the first Jew, Louis Brandeis, on the Supreme Court. Again, leveling the playing field everywhere. That was Wilsonian government. See, voters listening will hear you describe these qualities and think, oh, you know, if only we could elect this man again today, what would he, what would he do today? But anybody reading Wilson, your book, will put together in their mind a huge list of reasons why Wilson couldn't get elected today. He couldn't get as far. I mean, he couldn't. Could this man get anywhere politically today? Well, I think he could Mm. because he was genuine and he was a great communicator. Uh, and, you know, Wilson was the last president to write all of his own speeches. Again, this is that integrity again. It's all of a single piece. And Wilson had that power. He was very, very convincing. And he basically understood, as he said in more than one speech, that the two parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, were basically fringes on a an undeclared population. That basically he believed everybody in this, or most people in this country, were in the middle. And that people on either side had to appeal to that great mass in the middle. So Wilson was aware of that. And in doing this, he believed he could move the country in the direction he felt it should go, which was obviously to the left. It was with a progressive agenda. Mm -hmm. So I think he could have found a place. 
Um, I think he could have been very good um, with the media, no matter how modern it became. Um, hard for me to imagine him tweeting, but, but, but I don't know. He was not a man of few words, but he was a man of well-chosen words. And that's what Twitter's all about, isn't it? It's only got 140 characters. I want to know a little more about his relationship with awards. You mentioned, of course, the speeches. You mentioned the voluminous love letters that he wrote to both of his wives. What we should we should clarify this for the listeners. What instilled in him this this sense of the power of words? I mean, because he was a little late to the game as as far as reading and writing, was he not? He was. He was. Um, he, I think we would now consider him dyslexic. He certainly had some dyslexia. Uh, he didn't really learn to read until he was nine or ten, and he wasn't really reading fluently until he was about eleven. Once that happened, once he learned to read, the floodgates were open and he became rather ravenous uh, and he read widely. Uh, but he grew up, you see, in this great oral tradition, again, being the son of a minister, uh, son of a Presbyterian minister who wedded his political beliefs with education, with religion. So there was great wordsmanship around Woodrow Wilson all the time. When Wilson was a teenager, he so much wanted to be involved in politics that he used to read all the great speeches that had been written, especially some of the British uh, parliamentarians like Gladstone. And he didn't just sit and read them. When his father was not uh, giving sermons on Sunday, young Woodrow Wilson named Tommy uh, would go into his father's church and stand in the pulpit and read the great speeches of Daniel Webster. He would read them aloud. He right. practiced them. He orated. He internalized, he internalized just oratorical techniques he probably couldn't even explain himself, right? Exactly right. And instinct. Instinct and, and, and he's externalizing as well as internalizing. And he's really learning the muscles that you need uh, to utter these speeches. Mm. So words always counted for him. Mm. And of course, as as was the case in the 19th century when he grew up, um, there was the Bible everywhere um, in his life, uh, Shakespeare. Uh, this is also somebody who loved theater. Mm. I mean, even as president, he would just sometimes get in a train and go up to New York and go to a Broadway show. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, imagine this. <laughs> He loved vaudeville. He loved he loved the sound of the American language. He loved Will Rogers. Um, he was really into American culture. Mm. Now we should emphasize it. We we talk about how the legacy of Wilson lives on into the 21st century. Now we of course are talking about the 20th century when we speak of his presidency. This is this is a, a man very much of the 19th century, isn't it as well? He is. He was well. He was certainly born and raised in the 19th century. He was born in 1856 in Stanton, Virginia. And not only was he a 19th century figure, and this is another element that all too often gets forgotten in biographies of Wilson, he was Southern. Mm -hmm. he, he was born in Virginia and then raised in Augusta, Georgia, mm -hmm. Columbia, South Carolina, and Wilmington, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So that's four states of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. He remembered the Civil War. He remembered Reconstruction, and he is going to carry those memories really up until he's president of the United States and has to decide whether his own country that he now runs is going to go into a war. 
And he remembered how devastating war was. He remembered personal deprivation during the war. He remembered seeing neighbors coming home maimed, a lot of neighbors who did not come home. This really scarred Woodrow Wilson. I mean, he was a boy when all this happened. So this is also somebody who grew up in the South at this period when they were defeated. So he knew how that affected the psychology of people as well. There's one place in this country, Wilson said, know the world, nobody has to explain to me, and that is the South. And he meant everything that went with it. And that meant race relations, that meant losing a war, that meant a whole society, a whole economy that had completely collapsed. Can we, can we say his consciousness of his roots, that, that never left him. That seemed, did that only get stronger? through time? I think his consciousness got stronger. At the same time, he was always aware that the President of the United States is the only person who is elected by the entire nation. So he was very much aware of being President of all the states, of, of not just President of the United States, but President of the Reunited States. Mm. You know, when Wilson got elected in 1912, he was the first Southerner since the Civil War to be mm. elected. Yeah. This was perceived as a big historic moment. Mm. This was really the moment that the two halves of the states were going to come together again. Mm. That was the perception. And Wilson actually laid the pipe for this back when he was an historian, back when he was a college professor uh, in the 1880s and 90s, and began to write histories of America. And he was considered the first historian to be absolutely fair to both sides. Mm. He was somebody raised and steeped in the South, but somebody who was educated in the North, in New Jersey, who taught at Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania, who taught at Wesleyan College uh, in Connecticut. So this is someone who spoke without a Southern accent. Uh, he really was this great representative of the entire country. What do you, what do you think when you hear what we have recorded of, of Wilson's voice? Um, I think I can understand how exciting it must have been when Woodrow Wilson came along as a politician. Orators before him, and we can hear recordings of them, uh, were really like 19th century actors. And we have silent film footage of Wilson and of his contemporaries. And you see they really were, you know, there was great posturing and gesturing and lots of fists to heaven and all that. Wilson spoke like a modern man. He used modern vocabulary. In fact, he used very educated vocabulary. His language was heightened only by a natural sense of poetry. Again, the words are entering here. But, but Wilson's voice, uh, it, it, it was a lovely timber, uh, that he spoke with. Uh, he was extremely articulate. Um, most of Wilson's speeches, his campaign speeches, for example, were delivered off the cuff, and somebody would then transcribe them so we could read what he said. Well, I've gone through hundreds, thousands of these speeches in which there is not a, 
a sentence with a single error in it. There's not a misplaced word. There's not a paragraph that does not logically follow its predecessor. And then let's set this up. This is that's fairly common in other presidential speeches to see these problems. Well, I think I mean for somebody to speak extemporaneously right. for an hour or two. And how often do you see it speaking extemporaneously for an hour or two? Yeah. Even that's the, the feat itself, right? Yeah. The, I mean, I've seen Bill Clinton do that, uh, in which he could get out there and talk for an hour. Uh, in that fashion, and and Clinton may be uh, the best uh, extemporaneous orator we've had since Woodrow Wilson. Uh, now we've had great orators like Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan working from very good prepared texts. In many cases, texts they did not prepare themselves. Um, I was fascinated to learn that that Ronald Reagan wrote all of his radio addresses. That, that really cast new light on Reagan for me. But I think it shows you something that Reagan and Wilson had in common, which was, again, this integrity factor. Uh, that is, Reagan uh, really spoke from his head and from his heart. So did Woodrow Wilson. Uh, what you heard him say was something he truly believed. There's no falsity in any of Wilson's speeches. So when you hear his voice, you hear great conviction, you hear great um, surety about everything he is saying. There is one particular word we should come back to. You use it to describe him. You know, it's, you describe his integrity. Uh, and integrity these days, people tend to regard it as uh, some sort of form of honesty. It's the word's gotten uh, debased a bit. But we think about integral. You know, he's he's of one piece. Uh, this means he was a man who was never in doubt about his own beliefs, was he? I th I think that's accurate. Mm -hmm. Now I think he. I would never. I wouldn't say he had never had no doubt. Mm. That's a triple negative in there, I think. Um, but you get what I'm saying. Um, but this, because he did question things, and he really did seek answers, and he changed his mind. He was quite willing to do that, um, as he did in the case of women's suffrage, for example. He was a little slow in coming around to it. Um, he thought it should be adopted state by state. But there came a day, and it was literally almost in a day, he just turned on a dime and then suddenly became the most active spokesman for women's suffrage. So he was capable of that. And once he made a decision, he, he just went full throttle. There's a sense in which he had an unusual ability to snap to the realization of what was important or what was about to become important, right? I think he did. I think Wilson was definitely a man of his time. And he believed being a political leader meant looking forward all the time. This was his great objection to conservatism. He sometimes used the metaphor of a white picket fence that you just want to keep white all the time. And he'd say that's fine, but you've got to keep repainting it to keep it white. You've got to keep refreshing it. You've got to keep making your ideas work in their own period. He believed in very liberal interpretation of the founding documents. He believed the Supreme Court should do the same thing. He believed in elasticity. He used that word a lot, not only to talk about the interpretation of things, but in the economy. This was one of the reasons behind the Federal Reserve Board as well, that, that currency should have greater elasticity than it did 
if we if all our wealth was basically combined in the hands in the purses of a half dozen men mm-hmm. he saw maybe we could use another word as well he saw a united states that didn't have the flexibility to meet what might lay ahead right uh, before he came into office i i think that's exactly right and i think a lot of this and he didn't get specifically religious about this in public very often but i think this goes back to his deep belief in providence that basically everything that happened before is really just here to affect what is about to happen uh, the word providence means to look forward and to see forward to see what's ahead and wilson had that sense you mentioned his interest in american culture and i wanted to know if wilson's love of uh, of american culture his fascination with american culture do you do you see any parallels to your own interest in american culture which your books the biographies you've written evidence well sure i think that's one of the reasons wilson speaks to me so loudly as he does and i think it's one of the reasons he spoke to me when i was so young um i i don't know exactly why i always had this great passion for american culture but i certainly spotted that in wilson and i think part of that is a kind of idealism um it's why when i was um 15 years old uh, i had four pictures up on my wall in brentwood i had a picture of woodrow wilson of f scott fitzgerald my favorite writer of adley stevenson and don quixote mm-hmm. now at first glance that all doesn't make sense but there's a through line they were all very romantic even tragic the romantic figures they were all well quixotic uh Woodrow Wilson when he was campaigning for the League of Nations uh once said you know they call me an idealist and he said well of course i am that's how i know i'm an american uh, i see he saw idealism as an innately american quality absolutely absolutely i mean this was a country in which you could make yourself into anything you wanted to be largely through higher education certainly through hard work meritocracy again it all comes back uh to that uh, and firm convictions and acting upon them um uh, we are not put into this world to sit still and know woodrow wilson said we are put in it to act and and for wilson that men acting upon your convictions Do we still see idealism in that same way as as an American quality as as or as the way we see American idealism changed much in these 100 years how could it not Well I mean I think it, it's a cynical period right now certainly in our politics but you know that's what they said back in Woodrow Wilson's day too Um things were pretty rough politically in in Wilson's day Um so I I think that is part of the American fabric uh we are still makers and doers um you know if you look at what what's gone on in the silicon valley for the last decade or two um you see american dreams are alive and well everywhere uh you see new little shops um, selling new ideas uh every day in this country uh this is still a place in which you can be born um in the lower class and end up being the richest man in the world um so yeah i th- i'd say the american dream is still alive and well in this country and that's a form of idealism tell me about the experience of be- being a biographer but then wading into the 
see of the presidential biography, because, I mean, in America, presidential biographies are so much their own, I don't know about form, but their own world, even. I mean, we, we talked earlier off mic about how, you know, there's many readers in America who read primarily or only presidential biographies. What, how did you think about stepping into writing about a president, and if it felt different than writing other biographies? Well, I thought long and hard before I stepped into writing about a president, because it's more than a sea. It's an, it's an ocean. Uh, and, and it's, in some ways, an ocean that can never be completely charted, because the research one can do on a president is infinite. Um, my other books have all taken about nine or ten years to write. This one took 13. And those extra three years were almost entirely given to extra research that is required. Because a president's life, a president's hand, a president's thoughts are in every aspect of American life. You're not doing just politics and government. You're, you're doing everything. You're doing labor. You're, you're doing um, sociology. You're doing medicine that's happening. You're, you're into diplomatic history, military history. So it involved the economy. Everything is involved. Uh, so it requires reading not just the president's papers, but, gee, what about the secretary of state's papers? Right. Maybe the secretary of labor's papers. There's always more. It stretches infinitely. Always. You could you could still be researching this well, if you want to. And, and, then if, and then as we're engaging with the world, don't I have to go to Clemenceau's papers in France and Lloyd George's in England? And yes. Well, indeed, so you could spend several lifetimes and really never get to the bottom of it. So in that sense, it is much more consuming than other more contained stories. Is, is that why we love reading about presidents, because they're a nexus of all American subjects just in a man? Well, I think they are in many ways, and I think, I think it boils down to this for me. I think the reason we read biographies um, and the reason biographers should write biographies is to present a world through a single life. That is, I think the subjects of my books, I choose them because I believe they can provide the lens that allows me to give you the panorama of American life, or even world life, even the human condition during the period in which they lived. Um, it is not just, it is not enough to tell just the story of the person I'm writing about. I have to show you the life and times that created that person and how that person changed those life and times. Mm. So that's largely what I'm up to here. And a president, just because his hands are everywhere, um, obviously has much more influence, and I think that's why they make for such compelling re uh, reading. What is a question you had about America that writing Wilson's life helped you address for yourself, just something you, something you had, a line you had gone down intellectually about America, things you'd wondered about that Wilson has helped you think about? Well, there were several, but I think foremost, and this is, this is, I think, the, the darkest mark against uh, Woodrow Wilson has to do with race in this country. Uh, and it's one of the great ironies that Woodrow Wilson, the most progressive president we had had, uh, turned out to be the most regressive president when it came to civil rights. And that became an interesting challenge for me to see where that came from and why that occurred. And, of course, that involved going back to his southern roots, 
uh, and, and tracing it all. And the answer to your question is, it allowed me to examine what the United States was like racially a hundred years ago and the 50 years before that when Wilson was growing up in the South. And it really allowed me to see uh, that this country was really built on a fault of racism. I mean, racism is embedded in the American Constitution. Uh, the fact that we had to get rid of slavery in the Constitution, the fact that slaves were not whole people uh, when they were counted in the, sen in the census in the beginning. And so by the time Wilson came along, not just as president, but as a child, you see, uh, racism, segregation, this was alive and well in great parts of the country. Um, the economy of the South was built on a racist idea. So by the time Wilson does become president and does reintroduce segregation into federal offices where they had just started to open the doors to African Americans, uh, Wilson was still very much a centrist in the United States. And what I have tried to do is, is paint that picture so that modern readers can see that. Um, it's one of the most difficult things, not just for readers, but for writers, um, not to fall into what we call presentism, mm -hmm. not to apply the values of 2013 to what was going on in 1913, but to try to explain to the reader what life in 1913 was. Mm -hmm. That's extremely important. Mm -hmm. You describe this man, and I read about him. He is both somebody who could look forward to the 21st century and someone who is both deeply a 19th century religious southerner, a racist southerner, whatever you want to call it. This... How was that best reconciled, the fact that he was a man of the past even in his day and a man of the future as well? Well, I think this is somebody who was quite aware of his times. Now, let's take race, for example. Integration was very much on his mind. He always kept the door open to African-American petitioners. He was interested in everything they had to say. And invariably, he either said or suggested, at least, what he really felt, which was, he just didn't think the country was ready for integration then. He said more than once, it will be another generation or two before this country can deal with that. Mm. And if you get out your calendars, he gets it almost to the month. Oh, really? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's in the 1950s and 60s mm. that this takes place. Mm. Wilson knew that there were still people alive uh, who had fought in the Civil War in his day. He knew there were people still fighting the Civil War who yes. wanted to go back to what it was. Let's face it, there are people today still fighting that um, who really can't deal with uh, integration. We're not a fully integrated society by any means, even with our first biracial president. So all that being said, I think Wilson did as much as he felt he could do. He saw, for example, in the military where there, where there had been some, some motions toward integration, he saw also great friction, great antagonism. Uh, and he knew that, that there was going to be a revolution breaking out. And I think he didn't want it on his watch. And I also think, and this is somewhat cynical, but I think accurate, 
that he felt he really needed the southern block of congressmen and senators to get his progressive agenda passed. And it was not going to happen as they made it very clear his first month in office. He was going to get nothing passed if he continued to integrate the government. Does he leave you with any questions, Wilson? Questions about America? What, uh, what, 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 do you, what do you find yourself wondering now that this book has done, that you've been talking about it? I find myself wrestling with personal questions about Wilson. Uh, one big domestic question and one big international question. The domestic one has to do with race, in fact, because I think Wilson had a great opportunity in 1919 when he came back from Paris having negotiated the peace treaty and he came back to a country which had just fought in this war and the army included a great number of African-American soldiers and they returned to America thinking this was their moment to become full-fledged American citizens. And I think even with the great anti-African-American feeling in this country, Wilson as president, as a Southerner, could have used it as a great teaching moment in American history to say, you know what, it is now time to break, break down some of the barriers. These black soldiers have shed the same blood. They have lost the same brothers every white soldier has. And it's time to do something. And he did nothing. He said nothing. You think he would have embraced a teaching moment? That's what I think he would have as a great teacher himself. And I don't think it's coincidental that the worst race riots the country had seen broke out that summer, the, the red summer. It was so bloody, as it was called, uh, in 1919. The other big question it raises for me uh, is uh, why, when Wilson came back from Paris with the treaty, knowing the now Republican and hostile Senate had to ratify it, why he made absolutely no compromises, none, up to the bitter end, when it had been rejected several times, and in the, the 11th hour, his greatest opponent, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, uh, the dean of the Republicans in the Senate, uh, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, offered a compromise that was not that severe, and Wilson would not even look at it. He would not consider it. And one has to wonder, I wonder, uh, what would have happened had he made those concessions of a few sentences and gotten his League of Nations? Right. What would have happened to the world in the 30s and the 40s uh, had he done that? So those, those are big world questions I have to consider. And it raises another personal matter, which is something that the book gets into in great detail, and that is Woodrow Wilson's health. And to what extent were the strokes, small strokes that he was having over in Paris, and then the big stroke he had when he came back to America, to what uh, extent did they affect Wilson's judgment? And I think, and I think the reader will believe to a great deal. It's something we haven't touched on, but yes, this is, if we couldn't have Wilson as president today, his health would probably keep him out of, that, that'd be the reason, his health, one, right? One would think, if we, if we knew, yes, what we know today from my book, what Wilson was suffering from, I don't think there's a chance he could have, well, there was hardly a chance he would have been made president of Princeton. Uh, uh, he was having health issues then. 
um, which we now recognize as small strokes, certainly cerebral incidents of, of some kind. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think uh, he would have a very difficult time. But as it happened, he lived this life, and you can read it, listeners, in Wilson by A. Scott Berg, Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall, coming to you from the as-yet-unfinished new LARB HQ. You can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org or follow more from the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.